Well, this is the podcast from First Baptist Church in Madison, North Carolina. This is Dr. Chuck McGathy coming to you with a message entitled, The Meaning of Messiah. This is for the 22nd Sunday after Pentecost, which will be uh, the 29th of October, 2023. The scripture passage that I'll be following is from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 22, 34, through 46. I'm going to take a moment and read the scripture to you, and then I'm going to uh, talk about this very interesting passage that's coupled together. From Matthew 22, 34 through 46. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David by the spirit calls him Lord, asking The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Last week in a sermon I called God's forgiveness, I concluded the story of a family, the great patriarch, Moses had successfully led the children of Israel into freedom, but it was also a barren and howling wasteland. There, numerous challenges faced the people. God was clearly using that wilderness experience to mold the Hebrews into his chosen conveyors of his redemptive message for the entire world. I can say that with confidence because I have read and reread the whole story in the library of books we call the Bible. I also say it because I know that God's redemption story is centered on the person of Jesus Christ, the one we know as Messiah. I told you all of that because as followers of Jesus, we approach what we read and understand about the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, otherwise known as the Bible, in a distinctive way. You see, we believe that Jesus is alive. He is our living guide who aids us in our understanding the passages and meaning of the Bible. We believe he speaks to us so much so that we refer to Jesus as the Word of God. My own term to describe this is the incarnational view of the inspired text. To be incarnate means to become real, tangible, understandable. Because of this, our Bible reading is a highly personal and interactive experience. And please don't let that throw you. 
It simply means that God himself has come to guide us through his Son, our Savior Jesus. The Spirit of God flows through the words written down by humans, but somehow they reveal the beauty, power, and love of God. This passage, these recorded words of Christ, we are considering today will help demonstrate what I mean. Here, two teaching stories are combined in such a way as to appear confusing. What, after all, does the former have to do with the latter? Jesus' teaching on the greatest commandment is so clear and easy to understand. It rings of truth in our modern ears. When asked what the most important aspect of the law for righteous living is, we are told, love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Many, a sermon has been preached on this forthright and enduring lesson of the Bible. Then the very next passage expresses a thought that is far more difficult to apprehend, harder to grasp, and yet extremely important to understanding of our faith in our day. Let me read this once again from a slightly different translation. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question, What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it? Then, that David by the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Now, if that is a bit confusing to you, let me reassure you, you are not alone. What I want you to know is that these words of Jesus were clearly understood by his original audience. Those people were described as a group of very religious Jews known as Pharisees. They not only understood what Jesus was saying about himself, but they were also frustrated with him for saying it. You see, they read their Bibles a certain way. When Jesus offered up a new understanding of Scripture— They were beyond speechless. They were angry enough to want to exterminate both Jesus and the message he proclaimed. It all had to do with the meaning of Messiah. Before I go on to tell you the way they believed about the Messiah, let me take a moment to explain to you some more about the Pharisees, these ancient religious folk who plainly resemble modern religious people. Biblical scholar William Barclay does a good job breaking down the types of Pharisees there were in the first century from a Jewish perspective. The Talmud is a vast collection of Jewish teachings, laws, and stories. In its pages, it distinguishes seven kinds of Pharisees. As you hear each of these, if you can, as you hear each of these, see if you can identify some modern religious parallels. First, there was the shoulder Pharisee. He was meticulous in his observance of the law, but he wore his good deeds upon his shoulder. He was concerned for a reputation of purity and goodness. True, he obeyed the law, but he did so in order to be seen by men. There was also the wait-a-little Pharisee. He was the Pharisee who could always produce an entirely valid excuse for putting off a good deed. He professed the creed of the strictest Pharisees, but he could always find a reason for allowing practice to lag behind. He spoke, but he did not do. Another was the bruised Pharisee. 
The Talmud speaks of the plague of these self-afflicting Pharisees. These Pharisees received their name for this reason. Women had a very low status in Palestine. No really strict Orthodox teacher would be seen talking to a woman in public, even if that woman was his own wife or sister. The Pharisees went even further. They would not even allow themselves to look at a woman on the street. In order to avoid and do so, they would shut their eyes and so bump into walls and buildings and other obstructions. Therefore, they bruised and wounded themselves, and their wounds and bruises gained them a special reputation for exceeding piety. Yet another Pharisee was described as the humpback Pharisee. Such men walked in such ostentatious humility that they were bent like a hunchback when they were so humble they would not even lift their feet from the ground and so tripped over every obstruction they met. Their humility was self-advertising ostentation. There was the ever-reckoning Pharisee. This kind of Pharisee was constantly counting up his good deeds. He was endlessly striking a balance sheet between himself and God, and he believed that every good deed he did put God a little further in his debt. To him, religion was always to be reckoned in terms of a profit and loss account. Six was the timid or fearing Pharisee. He was always in dread of divine punishment. He was therefore always cleansing the outside of the cup and the platter so that he might look good. He saw religion in terms of judgment and life in terms of a terror-stricken evasion of judgment. Finally, there was the God-fearing Pharisee. He was the Pharisee who really and truly loved God and who found his delight in obedience to the law of God, however difficult that might be. That was the Jewish Talmud's own classification of the Pharisees, and it is to be noted that there were six bad types to one good. There would not be a few listening to Jesus' denunciation of the Pharisees who agreed with every word of it. But what I want to ask you is more personal. Do you think you see any of our modern religiosity in these descriptions? Might you even see yourself at times captured in these evaluations? I know I do. So then, if the congregation of Pharisees gathered that day were just like folks are today, is it not understandable that they too may have gotten a few things wrong about God and the way he wants to help us? And on this subject of the coming anointed one of God, Christos in the Greek, Messiah in the Hebrew, they had formed a firm opinion, but one that was going to be challenged by Jesus. First, let me describe how they thought the Messiah would operate. The essence of the word Messiah meant a divinely chosen ruler for the people. But for centuries, there was no divinely anointed ruler for the Jews. Instead, they were governed by foreign powers, even Though he called himself the king of the Jews, Herod and his sons were not regarded as of the people, but Idumeans appointed by the Roman emperor as a puppet king. Therefore, the people waited, prayed, and hoped for the day when the true Christos, the true Messiah, would come and fulfill the promise of deliverance. They expected he would come from the lineage of David, he would be of royal descent, and that he would drive out the foreign occupier from their midst. Their messianic dream was a vengeance, control, and dominance. It was a nationalistic form of faith that demanded a tough Messiah who would help them gain control politically, culturally, and militarily. But Jesus offered up another picture of the Messiah, one that most had not considered. This view of the Messiah was a real challenge. It was not part 
of their religious thoughts. In order to accept it, they would have to be taken back to the ancient text and reread them. And that is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus insisted that his followers understand what messiahship really meant. He knew their ideas about the Messiah needed a radical change, so he takes them back to the most common descriptor, the title of Messiah as Son of David. Behind that was the expectation that there would one day come a mighty prince who would destroy Israel's enemies and lead the people to unparalleled conquest. Then he asked them, whose son they understood the Messiah to be? They answered, as he knew they would, David's son. And then, as Dr. Barclay explains, Jesus then quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. All accepted that as a messianic text. In the first Lord is God. The second Lord is the Messiah. That is to say, David calls the Messiah Lord, but if the Messiah is David's son, how could David call his own son Lord? It was there in scriptures all along. It was something they could not see, something they would not see. Yet perhaps even then there was some who began to wonder if God had a different plan than they had figured. Could it be that Jesus was far more than a king who would conquer, but a king of kings who would deal with our most perplexing problems of sin, separation, and death itself? What if the Messiah that God had in mind was like Jesus? And that brings us right back to the previous teaching, the one we are most likely to know by heart and understand. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This Messiah is not a nationalistic icon, but a soul deliverer who comes to each one with a message of grace, mercy, and peace. When we read through the Gospels and see that his conquest is not political, cultural, or on the field of battle, but upon a cross, then we understand what the meaning of Messiah has been all along. Yet even today, this needs to be learned again. We are as the Pharisees and the others who desired a conquering Messiah, a fighter who will take our nation back to God by any means necessary, up to and including even violence? Today, Christian nationalism often embraces an image of Jesus that wants to rewrite the meaning of Messiah. Too often I hear the Messiah being defined as a tough guy, Lord. This has caused some to question the value of Jesus' teaching of love and forgiveness. Evangelical commentator Russell Moore has noted this too. Speaking to the media, Moore said, What was alarming to me is that in most of these scenarios, when the pastor would say, I'm literally quoting Jesus Christ, the response would not be, I apologize. The response would be, yes, but that doesn't work anymore. That's weak. <clears throat> I believe that this passage of Matthew was written not just for those of his day, but also for us today. What is the meaning of Messiah for you? Let me suggest that our Messiah is a suffering servant who has come to conquer the darkness of our souls. This Lord is about reconciling and putting us all into his heavenly family. He is not our avenger, but is our deliverer and friend. Our enemy is not one another, but the darkness and sin that separate us from God and one another. The cross is not our defeat, but our great victory over evil. The meaning of Messiah is Jesus.
He is our King. He is our Lord. He is our Deliverer and Friend. Proclaim the good news. The Messiah has come. Let us pray. Lord, we get it. You have surprised us all. It is not as we supposed. It is far better. You have come to deliver every soul from the sin and darkness that oppresses us. Help us to see that, believe that, and share that in our daily living. Thank you for your everlasting gift of love. Amen.